0: Well, I want to begin just by showing you uh, a few photos. Maybe you've seen some of these on, I don't know, Facebook or some of these uh, abandoned houses, hotels, theme parks, various structures. Not only are they a little bit eerie, uh, but I love them because I find them to be redemptive. For every cause, defunct business, or tragic story represented by these photos, There's also the unmistakable thread of life and hope. I mean, they're literally coming back to life, like the earth is reclaiming these places. Stone and concrete and steel and wood that once covered the earth as monuments to human potential and dominance and gross miscalculation on some of these. Um, Things that we tend to call ruins, by the way, are anything but abandoned to God. They're reclaimed, they're redeemed, The God of life is patient and he's relentless. He has all the time in the universe to bend things toward his good and gracious ends. And so where we see destruction in our limited scope of life, he sees potential for rebirth and new life. And I am thankful for that. When the story seems like a dead end, whether it's the biblical story or when it's your story or the story of our current narrative in the world. When it seems like a dead end, God can break in, and often does, with fresh possibilities. This evening, we're going to be continuing our exploration of the book of Samuel. And as you may recall, this story takes place near the end of the time of the judges, days when Israel's sin and lack of good leadership led them to a precipice that basically looked like they were going to fall off into oblivion and and just be consumed literally by the nations that surrounded them, just become part of these other tribes and nations. Because they followed other gods and abandoned their loyalty to Yahweh, they found themselves at a bottom of a pit that they themselves had dug with no ladder to get out. They were in trouble. Enter a simple man and woman Elkanah and Hannah an everyday couple with relatable problems deeply in love with each other but unable to conceive and God does the impossible by opening Hannah's womb through this miracle she gives birth to a child named Samuel a boy who would be extra attentive to the word of God and this listening boy would grow up to be a prophetic man and it was through Samuel that God would continue his mission of deliverance, a mission that he started the moment Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Samuel would anoint Saul as God's representative king over all Israel. And Saul's reign, of course, started brightly. He was humble, and he was a successful warrior, and he would defend Israel against all un- uh, comers. You know? like he, he did a good job in the beginning. But in the end, his fears and his pride would corrupt his heart to the point that Saul would be rejected by God. And God did this for the sake of his people. He saw that Saul was going to bring that nation to destruction. So once again, the story appears at a a dead end. Israel's neighbors were more advanced in nearly every category from technology to military to political structure to economics. Meanwhile, Israel had, re- had a rejected king, and Samuel, their one great bright spot, this great prophet, was now old, and his sons were failures, and it doesn't look like this is going to end well. And maybe you're here today needing God to do a new thing in your heart or in your circumstances. Then this story is probably for you. Would you stand with me as we read 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13? Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, I'll well, take a heifer and with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the son whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice." He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by and said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are, are these all the children? And he said, well, there, there remains the youngest and he's out tending the sheep. Well, then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, he was red. Like a Fraser, With beautiful eyes, like a Fraser, And a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for it is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Lord, we thank you for this story that tells us, yeah, it's like a backstory of Jesus, of course, but I also thank you that you speak to us through this narrative, that you have something for us today. And I pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would bring that to light, that you would speak to our hearts and encourage us where that is so desperately needed and challenge us where that is probably also so desperately needed. Lord, have your way with us through your word. Amen. You may be seated. So our text this evening begins kind of this this big hinge in the book of Samuel. You know, when I say the book of Samuel... It was originally First and Second Samuel was one, one long thing when they turned it into Greek. Greek has vowels, Hebrew does not. So you can imagine the length of the text was almost double. They had to cut it in half. That's why we have 1 and 2 Samuel. I just say Samuel. Okay, so anyway, it, it spans from 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 8, this next big section that we're in. And it is the beginning of the transition of power from Saul to David. And as the story opens, Saul is king over Israel, even though God has taken away his his anointing or his blessing over Saul. And and so fresh is God's rejection of Saul that Samuel is still in mourning. You know, Samuel had invested a lot in Saul. Then he had to get over the fact that he wasn't the guy anymore, that that now he was going to share power with Saul. And then Saul turns out to be mistaken after time, after time, after time. And so he's just, he's sad about it. But God already has something new in the works. And so he sends Samuel off to this tiny town of Bethlehem, about six miles south of Jerusalem. In just a couple of weeks, right, we're going to enter the season of Advent. And of course, we, oh, Bethlehem, this is the the place where the manger is and where baby Jesus is born. And um, so, yes, we should recognize that word. And of course, it's from the line of David that Jesus comes So, it's cool that this functions. Like, if you like, uh, I I love a superhero movie, but then I like the backstory. You know, like, how did Spider Man become Spider Man? That's like, like my favorite thing, right? So, this is like where Jesus comes from. This is why it's significant he was born in Bethlehem. So, if anything, cool backstory. All right. So, Samuel is rightly afraid to go on this mission to anoint this whoever, this son of Jesse, because it would be an act of treason. And Saul's kind of going crazy. And, like, he could be killed, that's you know punishable by death, treason in, in most governments, especially in this time and age, right? Uh, but God has it all under control, and so he suggests that Samuel takes this animal so he can have an alibi. I, does this mean that God causes us to lie? I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, and so he tells him to bring this animal, and so Saul wonders, hey, what are you doing going to Bethlehem? That's kind of a small town, and it's weird that you would go there. Oh, I'm just going to Bethlehem to make a sacrifice, no big deal. And when he gets there, he's supposed to connect with this guy named Jesse because it's one of Jesse's sons that God has chosen to be king. Now, if you were an original listener to this narrative, if you were a Jewish person steeped in Jewish thought and religion and the Bible, if I say Jesse's people, you're like, your hope meter just went from zero to eight or nine on the hope meter out of 10. Why? Because Jesse is the son of Obed who is the son of Ruth. And Ruth is a story about a ruined family and a Moabite woman with no prospects, who, because of her loyalty and faithfulness, is rewarded by marriage to a good man, a godly man, who would not only protect her and redeem her and provide for her, but he would bring her into a covenant so that she would become one of the people of God. Ruth the Moabitess. I don't know if you've done any work on Israel's relationship with the Moabites. They were despised, cursed people because of what they did to Israel when they came out of, out of slavery in Egypt. And yet this Moabitess is redeemed. And oh man, there's a whole sermon right there. We'll do Ruth one day together. I can't wait. But just so you know that this is a great story of hope. So if, if already we, we've got Jesse in here and oh man, The political situation, the religious situation, we're in trouble as a nation, but something's going on with Jesse's kid, look out, there's hope. Ruth is a message of hope. And so now, we learn that one of her great-grandsons would be the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel. Messiah simply means, literally means, anointed one. Messiah is a Hebrew word, and in Greek, you translate Messiah as Christ Okay? So this is a deliverer, an anointed one, not the Messiah, but a Messiah. So Samuel gets to Bethlehem, and the people are kind of freaked out because why would this great prophet come to their little town. I mean, this, there's not like a, a, a place of worship there where they, the, he makes this circuit to Bethlehem. Why would he come there? Prophets only go places when they have news of judgment or like they want to shake people up and say, you've been doing it wrong or get back to God and all this kind of stuff. So they're freaked out. Why is Samuel coming to their town? Do you come in peace? And he assures them, yes, I come in peace. We're going to do this sacrifice. Now, in the ancient world, a sacrifice was a barbecue. Like, you take this animal, it says a heifer, so it's a a cow. Small town, not many people, they're going to feast on this thing. And and, and certain parts had to be burned as a a sacrifice to God. But frankly, yeah, there's some nice, probably like some ribeyes and some nice cuts with the fat in it, but also all the gross stuff. Like, I don't know, he likes the entrails. That means a lot of this animal, sorry vegetarians, sorry Christina, um, I see your face. But anyway, like there's really good cuts of meat in there. And, and they're barbecuing, and they're, everybody's coming to this party. So now it's become a source of good news. Samuel's there to make a sacrifice. And in this barbecue, right, Jesse's family comes, and Eliab, his oldest son, who must have been studly looking, uh, because Samuel thinks to himself, surely this is the guy. Like, look how tall he is, and, and strong and capable. He's the eldest son. And the eldest sons in these families were already groomed to, they, it was assumed, it was assumed they would just be the leader of the clan after the father and grandfather died. So, so Eliab is already groomed for leadership, he's tall and strong, he looks like the part of the king and surely this is the one. And you already know the story, you know that that's not what God is looking for in a king. And After all, Saul was tall and strong and started off humble and from a humble family and he didn't necessarily turn out great, right? Now, before we jump into the obvious low-hanging fruit lesson of don't judge a book by its cover, right? Um, Consider another subtle subtext here, and that is Samuel's failure in assuming that he already knew what God was looking for. Samuel was a prophet, and not just a prophet. Like, there's that whole narrative in the beginning of 1 Samuel about how good of a listener he is, right? And he hears God... And if there's any character in the book of Samuel so far that you would guess had wisdom and insight, if there's anybody of that we've met so far in Samuel, that you would say, if there's anyone's advice that I would follow thus far reading Samuel, it's going to be Samuel. Like, he just makes really good choices, right? Like, he's, he's the prophet, he's the guy. And yet, if you look more closely at this character, the times when Samuel speaks well and acts wisely Are those times when he's directly spoken to by God? When God gives him a word or insight or tells him what to do. Actually, Samuel makes quite a few mistakes when he just wings it. And it begs the question, is anyone truly wise, in the truest sense of that word, without God? Like, is anyone truly wise about the way things actually are without God? Is there true wisdom, true wisdom to the foundations? Yes, there's a lot of smart people that give good advice and to a certain level, but when you get into the foundation of how the universe actually works, is there any true wisdom without God? So if Samuel the prophet needed to rely on God to make good decisions, what makes me and you any different? Right? In Samuel's world there was a certain look to a king. Strong, tall, capable of fighting, demanding respect, if not fear, of his enemies and his people. It never occurred to Samuel that perhaps God had a different way of seeing things. In our world, there's a certain kind of unspoken goal in life in America, to be comfortable to be happy, to be secure. I mean, just look at the, the percentage of the ads we see on TV that speak to those very desires. And if we make our decisions on how we spend like our time and money and relational credit based on those assumptions that life is really about comfort and security and, and, and happiness, then our lives are going to look quite a bit different than the kinds of things that Jesus talks about in, say, the Sermon on the Mount or any of his teachings, really. They're going to go in different directions. We we would all do well to learn from Samuel that no matter how close we are to God, you're here in church, so you're like, I'm okay. I'm preaching to you. I'm not okay, okay? So (laughs) no matter how long we've been walking with God and reading the scriptures no matter how well we know them, we still need to rely on God when we're making our our decisions. We still need to actually apply the scriptures that we might know so well and have them all memorized and all this kind of stuff, preach sermons on them. I actually have to do what I'm talking about and do what the text says, right? That, that, That would be wise. Okay, now we can move on to the more obvious principle that we see before our eyes humans and God, we don't look at things the same way, right? Humans often look at the way things appear on the outside, while God considers the inner character or the heart of things. People see the way things are, God sees the way things can be when he gets involved. Now, we know this because all of our moms probably told us, or some parental figure, don't judge a book by its cover, and we know this because there's countless fables and morality tales and songs and poems telling us not to make judgments based on mere externals. I've got three kids. There's endless children's book sneaking that into the tale, right? But things aren't always as they seem. In fact, sometimes the things that appear substandard are the best. For example... Usually the closer a restaurant looks to breaking like health code violations, the better fa that they have. It's just a fact. Except for I will say Soy House is really clean and has really good food too. So I, I'll just say that. Soy house on Holly. I don't work there. It's good though. Sometimes churches can be the same way. You know, I've been to churches, traveled around in Europe and, and, and even places in town. They're spotless and beautifully decorated with services that would put, you know, the production quality would put a Broadway show. You know, the same level, right? And yet, it's not necessarily an indicator that there is life there, that Jesus is there. And and then I've been to churches and with dirt floors in Mexico, or I, I'm part of this church plan on the lettered Streets that uses rented space with crazy some kinds of aesthetics. But I, there's a lot of life here, and, and it, so it's not. Yeah, so it's not just it's not just the way things that look on the outside. It's it's sometimes it's what you know, it is always what's in the middle, what's in the substance. Luke Skywalker, you know, how can I not mention when he goes to Dagobah, right? He's looking for the great Jedi Master. You're already picking up what I'm putting down, right? He sees this little green ball guy with the big ears with bad English syntax, and he says, there's no way this is Master Yoda, right? And what does he say? Size matters not. Look at me. Judge me by my size, do you? Hmm, hmm. Actually, the, I looked up the quote. There's two hums. <laughs> and then it says, and well, you should not, for my force." My ally is the force, and powerful ally it is. So Luke Skywalker would, would misread Yoda at his peril, man, right? You don't judge a book by its cover. Now, we know better in theory. We're all laughing and getting it like, yeah, it makes sense. We've been told this. We, we know it cognitively. We could write it on a test that that's what you're supposed to do, but we don't do it very well. And part of it is just biological. I read a fascinating article uh, several months ago on just like why people today still are tribal in how we make snap judgments, and and some of it's just biological. Like, if you're a third century B.C. hunter, right, and you are hunting deer um, next to the borders, sort of close to the border of a of a warring tribe tribe that you're war, and you come through the bushes. You bust through it, and there's a clearing, and there's 12 dudes with spears, and they turn and look at you. You have to know, like, really quick, are these good guys or bad guys? And how do you tell if they're good guys or bad guys? Maybe they're tattoos, maybe their hairstyle, because different tribes do different hairstyles. You judge it based on what they're wearing, on how they're speaking to each other, on maybe even their skin color. Okay, so externals quickly boom this is like ingrained in us it's just we make these snap judgments literally based on externals and we do this all the time study after study shows that when a group of strangers are put into a room together like in a sociological experiment like gravitates toward like whether it's like races or accents or styles of clothing humans tend to take comfort in what is familiar to them And you can see the obvious problem with this, right? Whoever makes up the dominant group, whether that's in language or skin tone or gender, those are the people who make the spoken and unspoken rules about what is normal and acceptable and preferable and attractive. They're the ones who decide what is the right way to talk. Have you ever noticed that no matter where you are in America, every newscaster speaks like a well-articulated West Coast person? Even if you're, I mean, you're in Seattle or you're in Charleston, they sound like, kind of like me. The film Rich Crazy Asians came out recently, and for my friends who are Asian, and when I talk to them about this, this is a big deal. This is one of the first films starring Asian men and women in a role that isn't just using them for a cliche accent or because of a martial arts motif, right? It it literally, it, it was revolutionary for some of the friends I was talking to, to have them represented in the big screen in a positive light in mainstream popular culture. You know, I can hardly imagine because I grew up in a world where most everybody on TV who has a starring role is white and male. And it's still true that way. My point is that if we simply judge people by what the culture says is normal or usual or status quo, we're going to be missing out on so much of God's diversity and goodness in the image bearers that he's made. We have to work at it. If what I just said is that we're naturally inclined to be like we are, and if I'm like me and I'm from the dominant group, I have to work harder. Jesus tells me I've got to work harder. Jesus tells you, you've got to work harder to make these, to notice so that we see behind the externals. You know, we don't choose people just, I mean, unless you're, you're drafting for a sports team like a basketball team or something like that, like, we don't need our president or the mayor. We don't need that person to be a warrior anymore. So the standards are different but we sure like someone who looks like us. And we might be missing on the best person if we're just picking people who look like us all the time, right? So I think there's a very relevant teaching, even in this ancient text, that we need to look beyond the externals. Okay, but this isn't just a morality lesson on how to treat other people. Let me just turn a corner here our culture has also done a very successful job at screwing all of us up, whether you're the, from the dominant group like white dudes or not. Because what they've done is um, they've, they've told us through advertising and other things that uh, what, a per, what makes a person smart and valuable and attractive and desirable and necessary in the world, a- and it's such a a picture of a person that I'm afraid that not any of us could actually really be that person. None of us can actually live up to the standard that our culture has created. And, you know, what does that do? It causes all this fear and anxiety and shame and measuring and competition. I think the good news here is that God looks at the inside and he sees who you really are. Now, David was so far on the margins in his family. He wasn't even con- he wasn't even invited to the barbecue. Like at least his dad could have thought, "Hey, I don't need to pay to feed my kid today. Like he's a growing kid. Teenagers eat a lot, right? Like he could brought him to the cow." And okay, I should say the script. But like he doesn't even get considered. He is pff, so far down the food chain and he's out shepherding, which has lots of connotations. Anyway, according to the values of his day and age, David was definitely not king material. But God could see beneath his social status, and his stature, and his birth order, and could see that David had the kind of heart to be the king that God would want. And by the way, just in case you are good looking, David was also good looking. Like, it's not just... Short people, yes, I'm in that camp, um, that get picked. Like, like David was be- had beautiful eyes and he had these attributes. He just wasn't king material. He wasn't the right birth order. He wasn't necessarily tall and strong and all of these kind of things. It's no secret that David wasn't even close to being a perfect king. At his lowest point, he commits adultery, sexual assault, and murder. How could a guy like that be considered someone after God's own heart? And I think the answer is this, that being a man or a woman after God's own heart didn't mean that David had a heart like God's. It's not what that means. It means that he was a man who was ever pursuing God's heart. A man after God's own heart. Think of it, a man who runs after God's own heart. You and I can run after God's own heart. This isn't putting an impossible standard like you have to have a heart like God's. I don't know anyone like that except Jesus. Out of 150 Psalms, the worship book of the Bible, David has 73 attributed to his name. He was a worshiper. He was an observer of nature that caused him to to worship the Creator. He was an observer of human emotion and it caused him to sing the highest praises and to write some of the deepest laments in all of history, and all of scripture. David was honest before God. He was honest with his feelings and honest with his anger and honest with his pain and at times honest with his hatred. He was honest before God, intimate with God a man after God's own heart. Saul was always making excuses, always covering up, always putting on a good face, but not being honest with God. You see the difference? David was compassionate, he was thankful, he was worshipful, and he was humble enough to confess his sins when he sinned, and he did quite a bit. He was a man after God's own heart because in joy and in sorrow and in victory and humiliation of moral failure, David was dependent on God. David was dependent on God. That's what made him a man after God's own heart. And I I just want to pause. Do you realize how good a news that is, sisters and brothers? Because that's something that you can do. That's something you can learn to be. There's no qualification like, oh, I'm out because I'm a guy, or I'm out because I'm a woman, or I'm out because I'm middle class, or I'm out because I'm in poverty, or I'm out because I'm this ethnicity or that ethnicity, or I have this education level or that age. None of those things matter. That's just good news that the the playing field is even. We can participate. We can practice giving thanks and develop grateful hearts so like thanksgiving is this week i i I challenge you don't just go through the motions this this is a way that we can develop that muscle of being in thanksgiving for us it's the it's the bedtime prayer cycle and and it causes me to worship God when I hear even just the simple things that my kids will say they're thankful for. Things that I, I I'm I mean I'm expecting esoteric big like I'm thankful for the cross, you know. My kids don't pray that they're thankful for the cross. I hope someday they do. But they're thankful for things like soccer and for grandma's hugs and for the dinner that mom made that was so good tonight. And yeah, I should be thankful for those things too. And I can be thankful to the people and I can be thankful to the Lord for those good things. We can practice observing the beauty of creation and giving glory to God. We can learn to be honest with our feelings and thoughts before God and come to realize that He can handle our swinging emotion. He can handle the numbness that some of us feel. Maybe you don't feel any emotion and you feel distant from God. He can handle whatever it is that you're you're experiencing. Oh, buddy. He can handle you too, buddy. Okay, I'm always going to do this to you because I think it's the right way to go. I don't think there's a passage in scripture that is just about teaching us principles. I don't think preaching is about preaching good advice without good news. Otherwise, go listen to Tim Robbins or somebody better than me at Inspirational Speaking. I'm preaching the word of God and I think that there's good news in here. So yes, there's great principles that we can learn. I think we can practice being men and women who have a heart after God's own heart. I do believe that, but there's more to the story. I think that David is more than just a model for us to emulate. Plus there's a lot of things he does that don't do what he did. I think David is also a character, an archetype that points us toward Jesus it is often said that if you can find out what matters to a person, what they're really passionate about, you can can see into their heart about who they really are, About who they really are. And if we apply that same logic to God and see that in this passage, we learn that God desires a heart that is bent on knowing God's heart, then we can know that God is made of the same stuff, that God is passionate, that God desires deep and intimate relationship with you and with me and with everybody that we're going to encounter in our lifetime. That's fantastic. That's not advice. I, you don't need to do anything to make that true. That's good news. Amen? Amen? And so God is so determined to pursue us that he became flesh and dwelt among us, born in a manger in Bethlehem, the city of David, were the dominant people in power, when they looked at Jesus, they could not accept the possibility that he could be the anointed one, like David. He didn't have the right credentials. He didn't teach the scriptures the way that they thought the, tr- the scriptures ought to be taught. And when Jesus looked into people's hearts and invited them to come close, like the woman with questionable background, and Matthew, the tax collector, and Philip, the Greek, and Nathaniel the cynic, and Paul, the self-righteous Pharisee, and Peter, the brash fisherman, these are the ones that he chooses to be his disciples and apostles. And that's the same Jesus that looks into your heart and into mine. And he says to us, I see you. I know you. I know you don't think you're qualified. I see you. And I know the shame that you are living in. But I've covered all of that. That sin and that pain and that evil inside and that fear inside. I've taken it all on me, on my shoulders, on the cross and I declare you free. I think that's the message of good news from the scripture. You see, Jesus doesn't Choose us because we're qualified. He, he calls us to follow because we're already His. He's already accepted us. And the question is will we follow? Will we trust Him enough to quit trying to play the world's game so we can find true life in Christ? In our story this evening, David doesn't really do anything. You notice that? All he does is come forward when he's called. And then he's anointed with oil. And when he's anointed, that's a passive action. He's there and he is anointed by Samuel. And when that happens to David, the spirit of the living God comes on him and remains on him and empowers him to be the person that God's calling him to be. It wasn't his qualifications. Hear this. It was something harder. It was his submission. And that's the mystery. Well, you and I submit Our shame, and our fear, and our anger, and self-importance, our prejudice, and our privilege. Will we submit those things and lay them down so that Jesus can pour his spirit of life into us? I want to invite you to, if you're comfortable, to have your hands out in front of you like this. And I want to imagine... Invite you to imagine piling in your hands. I feel like for me it's more like carrying firewood because there's a lot of stuff. What are some of the, the narratives in your head? The shame that you carry? Or the cycles of sin that you feel trapped in? Or the anger? Oh, the anger that's just right below the surface that... Bears its ugly head on the people that you love the most. Or maybe it's insecurity. And just feeling like you're less than everybody else all the time. And maybe it is because of fear, your own prejudice toward other types of people. People even your own hatred, it's okay to admit that to the Lord. And imagine yourself loading your arms and your hands up with those things. And Jesus died to take those things. So I want to, ima- I want to invite us to imagine that we are before the foot of the cross. And I want to invite you to turn your hands toward the ground and to lay those burdens down and to surrender those things to Jesus. Lord, take this stuff, this filth, these false security blankets, Take our old life and fill us with something new. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. And I pray the moment that this time is over when we want to start taking these things up again, that you would help us and remind us that we're new creations and empower us for new life. We Bless you, Lord.